Good morning. It's a delight to be back and uh, especially grateful to have Michael back. As we mentioned last week, he went to meet with Thomas Merton last week at Gethsemane Abbey. And, uh, Merton, was <laughs> Merton was not there, but <laughs> the spirit of Merton was there. So uh, I think he had a very, very good and productive weekend. We continue to be amazed at this turnout, at the words that, of affirmation that we get week to week, emails, uh, people that run into us in various places in public and express their gratitude. I'm especially amazed and grateful at hearing that there are a number in this class who have come to this from a very different perspective and are sitting patiently and quietly throughout the class hearing things that are probably deeply disturbing. Um, and I applaud you for, for being here and for listening. I hope today will be one of those times for you to ask those difficult questions and we hope to have another time as well. Sometime perhaps when there's a little more time, maybe at the end of the class, I'll tell you more of my story. But it has been a long and painful journey from uh, where I was 15 or 20 years ago to where I find myself living now. And so I applaud all of you for sticking with this for so many weeks. Keep asking the questions, keep coming back, keep listening. And I hope today we'll do that. We're going to spend just a few minutes wrapping up what I didn't cover last week, which is the last of the final status issues about Jerusalem. And then we're going to open and take, take your questions. Um, is this work? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, so a quick overview of the old city. We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail, but we're looking now just at the old city. The Mount of Olives is here to the east. West Jerusalem, Jerus uh, Jewish Jerusalem is here. Uh, the 1967 Green Line ran right like this along the border of the old city. Uh, here is the Dome of the Rock, what, what Jews and Christians call the Temple Mount, what the, the Muslims call Haram Ash-Sharif. Um, so this is an area of great tension and conflict. The traditional separations of the old city into the Muslim quarter, Christian quarter, Armenian quarter, and Jewish quarter, we don't have time to talk about the historical significance and lack of significance of those quarters and what they represent today and what's happening in the old city. But just to give you a reference point about where I'm we are. To that slide. Yes. So the thing about this slide that's just important to note about why Jerusalem is so um, such a tense place, you have the Western Wall, which is considered the holiest site in Judaism, right here, next to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is considered the third most holy site in Islam, next to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which by some Christians would be considered the most holy site in Christianity. This whole space is approximately three times the size of Lipscomb's campus. So just think about that for a second. Within three times the size of Lipscomb's campus, you have the holiest site for Christians, the holiest site for Jews, and the third holiest site for Muslims. It's going to be a hot place, right? It's fairly contentious. Good, thank you. Okay, so we talked last week about the iconic views of Jerusalem. We won't go back through this, the ways that most of us see Jerusalem when we travel, looking from the Mount of Olives. We talked about the fact that Jerusalem is divided, 840,000 people in municipal Jerusalem now, 65% Jewish, 35% Palestinian. Again, I'll show you that that is by design and why it's worked out that way. Israel considers Jerusalem to be the eternal, indivisible capital of the Jewish people, passed in law in the Jerusalem law of 1980 in defiance of international law. The Palestinian Authority considers East Jerusalem to be the future capital of Palestine uh, and that Jerusalem is illegally occupied. The United Nations considered uh, at the time of the separation of 1947, they considered Jerusalem to be a separate place, a corpus separatum, international territory. Its status was be, to be determined by negotiations in the future. That has not changed in the eyes of the United Nations, despite the, the years of uh, occupation. 
So in the eyes of the UN, East Jerusalem is illegally occupied territory. The EU holds that same position about the status of Jerusalem. The United States position, as you might imagine, is a little more complicated and nuanced. <laughs> we speak of the city of Jerusalem very often, <coughs> saying that its final status is to be negotiated, but we do not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. Our embassy is in Tel Aviv. All <coughs> foreign embassies in 2016 are in Tel Aviv. No foreign nation currently has its embassy in Jerusalem as far as I can tell from the most recent records. There have been a few times in the last decades when some countries have moved their embassy to Jerusalem and then moved it out. U.S. citizens born in Jerusalem, we talked about, have an unusual status. Their passports simply state as a birth place of birth, Jerusalem. There was a law passed by Congress to allow them, if they wanted, to say Jerusalem, Israel on their passports. That law was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. So if you're born in Jerusalem as a U.S. citizen, your passport says you were born in Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem, Israel, not Jerusalem, Palestine, just Jerusalem, because the status of Jerusalem is still to be determined. We're not advancing. Okay, so we talked about that. We talked last time about the different types of Palestinians. This is very important with respect to Jerusalem. So we have Palestinian Israelis, what Israel calls Israel's Arabs what used to be called uh, Arab Israelis. Most Palestinian Israelis now prefer to be called Palestinian Israelis, recognize their Palestinian heritage and their Israeli citizenship. With respect to healthcare, which is where I took this slide from one of my lectures on healthcare, they are citizens of Israel covered by the U.S. national healthcare system. Jerusalemites are those Palestinians who live in the municipality of Jerusalem. They do not have citizenship in the state of Israel. We'll talk about their designation in a minute, but they do have access to social services in Israel. You have West Bank Palestinians, those that live in the 1967 borders of the West Bank, areas A and B and area C. Uh, they are a separate designation. They are not citizens of Israel. They are not citizens of Jordan, most of them. They are citizens of no nation. They do not have a nationality. And when they travel, they travel with travel papers, not with a passport. Then you have those Palestinians in Gaza, again, who are for the most part not citizens of Egypt, they are not citizens of Israel, they're not citizens of Palestine, they are people without a nation. And then you have the refugees, now the world's second largest refugee population after Syria, and the refugees can have a variety of different statuses, but most of them do not have citizenship in any country. They are recognized as, as refugees. So when we talk about the legal, sta legal status of Jerusalem, um, it was divided into east and west from 1948 to 1967. The majority, 38 square kilometers on the west side, 6 square kilometers on the east. 1967, after the Six-Day War, Israel annexed East Jerusalem, plus 64 square kilometers belonging to 28 Palestinian villages in the West Bank. And I'll show you that map in just a minute. So, and they stated that the new borders were determined by the need for ma Jewish majority in order to strengthen Israel's sovereignty to keep the majority of the citizens of, of Jerusalem, or to make the majority of the citizens of Jerusalem Jewish rather than Palestinian. And so you'll see, as we look at where the wall goes in Jerusalem, it's like redistricting in, in our congressional districts here in the states. We redraw the lines periodically to protect the voting majority that the, that the party in power wants to keep at that time. And that's what Israel did. They redrew the lines of the Jerusalem municipality to make sure there would be a Jewish majority. Permanent residency status was given to Palestinians in the area annexed in 1967, and they were offered the opportunity for citizenship in Israel if they wanted it. But in order to request citizenship, if you're a resident of Jerusalem, 
If you want to be a citizen in Israel, you have to swear your allegiance to the state of Israel. And now Israel has uh, proposed a law in the Knesset that says that you have to swear your allegiance to Israel as a Jewish state. Not just that you're loyal to the state of Israel, but that you're loyal to Israel as a Jewish state, which of course is very problematic for the Palestinian minority to do. You also have to prove that you are not a citizen of any other country. That law does not apply to Israelis. Israelis can hold dual citizenship. Palestinians are not allowed to hold dual citizenship. It's another example of the apartheid system that exists. If you're a Palestinian and you get citizenship in another country, you are forced to give up your Palestinian ID and your Palestinian residence in Jerusalem. And you're expected to show some knowledge of Hebrew. So that's the, those were the hurdles that were placed in front of Palestinian Jerusalemites if they wanted to apply for citizenship. So the majority of Jerusalemites chose not to be citizens of the state of Israel. So their permanent resident status is similar, same as that given to non-Jewish foreign nationals. So consider the implications of that. You're a Palestinian living in Jerusalem. You can trace your family roots back 800 years in the city. And now your status in your city is the same as a non-foreign national who is a permanent resident in the country. Considerable emotional and political consequences to the Palestinians. They can choose citizenship to be sure, but they have to go through these hurdles. So the rights of the permanent residents, if you're a Jerusalemite, you can live and work in Israel without special permission. That's a huge right. It's very important to Jerusalemites to hold on to that because it means they can travel freely. They get social benefits, the most important of which is health insurance. Israel has an excellent health care system. They have the right to vote in local elections, municipal elections in Jerusalem, but they cannot vote in the national elections for the Knesset because they are not citizens of the state of Israel. And their, their residency is not automatically passed on to their children in the way that citizenship is. The children of Jerusalemites have to apply and prove that they are Jerusalemites and that they reside in Jerusalem. And they have to apply for not, uh, family reunification for a non-resident spouse. So if you are a resident of Jerusalem, a Palestinian resident of Jerusalem, and you marry someone who is not a Palestinian resident of Jerusalem, you have to make formal application to the Israeli government to allow your family to be reunited and to allow your non-Jerusalem spouse to live with you in Jerusalem. And very often that's either denied or it takes years to happen. Very unlike what happens when a Jewish Israeli marries someone from outside who is then granted citizenship in the state of Israel. Yeah, can, you, can you briefly tell the story of Zedina? Yeah, um, Are you get to yeah, I, yeah let, me, let me do that. I want to show this map real quickly. And then, and then oh, and Palestinian residents of Jerusalem do not automatically have the right to come back. It's not guaranteed that they're able to return indefinitely in the future. Their status is constantly being reevaluated. So very quickly as we look at, at the map, and I don't want to use our t too much of our time, but here we are, Tel Aviv. Oops. I don't know what's going on. We're, uh, we're looking right here at Al-Quds, the Arabic name for Jerusalem, that Jerusalem uh, sits here. So as we magnify that, and this is going to be very complicated in detail, but here's the green armistice line that separated West Jerusalem in 1967 from East Jerusalem, I'm sorry, 1949. So all of this was Palestinian, Jordanian, Israel was here after the armistice, and in 1967 they conquered all this. What you see here is Israel's established border of Greater Jerusalem. That's the term they use to describe Greater Jerusalem. In red is the path of the wall. Some of it built, some of it proposed. Now, the old city sits here. When we hear about East Jerusalem in the news, we're largely talking about these neighborhoods here. It's 
where all the controversy exists. So the colors here, for those of you who can't see in the back, in purple, you have the Israeli settlements, what Israel calls the neighborhoods of Jerusalem, illegal settlements built on the Palestinian side of the Green Line. In this uh, tan or peach color here, you have the major Palestinian villages, like Beit Hanina, um, Shufat, other, other villages, Abu Dis. The map was drawn, the barrier was built to pull as many of the settlements into the municipality of Jerusalem as possible and to exclude as many of the Palestinian villages as possible in order to keep the balance of 75% or 67% Jews in Jerusalem and a minority of Palestinians. If all of Greater Jerusalem was granted access to Jerusalem, then the demographics change and you have too many Palestinians in the city of Jerusalem. So they drew this very complicated line in and out so that as many as possible of these Palestinian villages would be on the west bank side of the line and as many as possible of the settlements would be pulled onto the east, onto the west side of the line. So another one's a little less complicated. Here's the green line. In purple you see the Israeli settlements and in, in tan you see the Palestinian villages. So this is Bethlehem down here, Ramallah up here, Beit Hanina, and you can see the path of the wall trying to separate these communities. But what ends up happening, like right here, they couldn't do anything about Beit Hanina. There's no way to get it into the West Bank. So they drew a line right here, but that line went right through a neighborhood. So people who live here, whose mother live, lives here, or whose sister lives here, are now in two separate territories. One is in Jerusalem and one is in the West Bank because the wall was just built right down the middle of the street, dividing neighborhoods, all as a, a calculation to move as many Palestinians as possible out of the Jerusalem municipality. Again, the same thing in blue. Um, well, I'm sorry. This is clicking slowly. Okay, this is the last slide, then we're going to quit. In blue, you see the settlements. In red, you see the Palestinian villages and you see the, the, the borders of greater municipal Jerusalem reaching way down into the Judean desert, almost to Jericho. The idea is to finish out this ring of settlements that will go around Jerusalem, that will essentially cut it off from the rest of the West Bank so that there will never be an option for East Jerusalem to be affiliated or connected with the West Bank. Once this settlement rim is completed, the facts on the ground then become the reality that Jerusalem is surrounded by Jewish cities, Jewish neighborhoods, Jewish settlements, and completely cut off. It was at one time the economic hub of the Palestinian people. That now has been forced into Ramallah because most Palestinians don't have access to Jerusalem. So, a uh, quick story about that and then we will take questions for the, for the remainder of our time. Um, I have a friend who is a uh, nurse, Jerusalemite, can trace her family back for hundreds of years. Her family owns a home in the old city. Um, she works for Augusta Victoria, which is a Lutheran World Federation hospital in the Mount of Olives as the infection control nurse. She also works for an NGO in the West Bank. Dina is my age. 30 years ago, Dina married a West Bank Palestinian. Her <coughs> husband is a professor at Beers 8 University in Ramallah, a respected PhD, was the mayor of Beers 8 at one time. They've been married for 30 years. So, so he is from, go back one more, or forward one more, Michael. He is from Ramallah. Dina grew up in East Jerusalem. Prior to the Second Intifada and the closure of Jerusalem behind the wall, this was about a 10-minute drive. 
When I was a kid, we used to go to Ramallah for ice cream and to, to go out to eat. I mean, these cities were, were uh, almost, uh, uh, it's almost like a suburb. So he's from the village of Berzait, she's from Jerusalem. They were able to live together. They kept a home in Ramallah, they kept a home in Jerusalem. They could live together up until the Intifada, when Israel changed the rules and closed off Jerusalem. Since his identity card is West Bank Palestinian and hers is Jerusalemite, they could no longer live together. And for the past 25 years, 20 years of their marriage, they've had to live in separate places and see each other only once or twice a week. The reason being, he's not granted access into Jerusalem. For most Palestinian men, until you turn 55, you're considered a threat to the state of Israel. So you have to have special permission to enter Jerusalem. So he could not come and live in their family home in Jerusalem, where he had lived for the first 10 or 15 years of their marriage. She could not go and make residence with him, because to do so would forfeit her status as a Jerusalemite. Israel will periodically go to people's homes in Jerusalem in the middle of the night, knock on the door, to see who's actually living there. And if you're not at home in your bed, then they will challenge and say, you no longer live in Jerusalem. You live here with your husband, so we're going to take your Jerusalem ID away from you and make you a West Bank Palestinian. Well, for her, that has considerable consequences. The easy question most Americans ask her is, why didn't you just choose to go be with your husband? Well, she's a Jerusalemite. She's lived here for her family for hundreds of years. They own a home in the old city. That is her home. It's deeply connected to the land. Number two, she has social rights as a Jerusalemite. She has access to much better health care, and her children do, than is available in the West Bank. And she can fly out of the airport in Tel Aviv and go anywhere she wants in Israel. Her husband, if he wants to leave the country, has to cross the river to Jordan and fly out of Amman because he's not allowed to go to the airport in Tel Aviv. So this is the way that they live for some 20 years because he carries a West Bank ID and she carries a Jerusalem ID. And just this last year or two, when he turned 55, they were allowed to apply for family reunification. They had to make application to the Israeli legal authorities to prove that they were a family and to let them live together again. And this is not a unique story. This is the common experience of the Palestinian people. All right, that's so, Jerusalem. So. Yeah, um, we, want to, we want to take some time for, uh, for questions. Uh, we would ask that you avoid asking us questions that we don't know the answers to. Uh, <laughs> you do know the answer to this? What's that? <laughs> you do know the answer to Oh, of course. This is yeah. easy. This is really easy. Uh, no, we do prefer to talk about this as a Q&R instead of a Q&A, a, a question and response. We do not have the answers to everything you will ask. We are not experts or, or uh, we don't have necessarily authoritative knowledge on every aspect of this. So there are some things that we'll have to feel free to say. I don't know. Um, we can look it up, or you can look it up. Others that we don't have an expertise on, but we have some opinions on, or we've done some minimal research. So we'll try to respond to your questions. We may not be able to answer all of them. So anyway, floor is open. Yeah. Can you talk briefly about the indigenous Jews in Palestine, and has there been a consensus among that population over the last hundred years with the advent of Zionism about how the conflict should be settled? Uh, has there been a consensus among the Palestinian Jews, the indigenous Jews who've been there throughout? Yes, about how the conflict should yeah. be settled without mudding the waters of the, yeah. of the Jews that have right. come in over the years. As far as I know, that population and their descendants do not speak with a unified voice. So I don't, I, again, I'm not saying that's the correct answer, but I'm not aware mm -hmm. that there is a subset of the Israeli population now that identifies themselves as that remnant who speak politically with one particular voice. 
curious about the borders. I mean, when, when you go through and describe how crazy the borders are there in the East Jerusalem side, it looks nutty, right? I mean, it looks really yeah. nutty kind of to look through and see how crazy they are and jagged and whatnot. I'm curious, what, what would a pro-Israeli position be in defense of the borders, in defense of the way they've done it? Do they stand up and just say, yeah, we did this for, for districting purposes, or do they have wow. another justification? Yeah, I'll make a stab at that and then see what, what Michael says. There are a variety of Israeli positions on this issue. So the most right-wing position would be to say all of the land from here to here and even to the Great River, the original Zionist plan, all of this belongs to us. So we can draw the borders wherever we want because the borders are temporary. Eventually, we will have all of it. So that is, that is not just a radical fundamentalist position. That is a position of some parties in the Israeli government and the position of many people in Israel. Others would say this border is unfortunate, but it's drawn for security reasons. It's necessary that we separate ourselves from the Palestinians. But again, when you look at the border, it really is drawn not to separate themselves from the Palestinians, but to pull the settlements back into Israel. If international law and justice was the solution, you would build the border on the green line. If security was the primary consideration, you would have an impermeable barrier, which you do not, and one which uh, would pull more Palestinians back into Jerusalem, and back into to the West Bank. So the law of the line is clearly drawn primarily for the purpose of ensuring the Jewishness of Jerusalem and minimizing the number of Palestinians who come into Jerusalem and maximizing the pull of the settlements back. And I think most moderate Israelis would say, yes, we understand that that's what we're doing. This is a demographic fight. Yeah, would I don't you? know that I'd have much to add. I mean, there are <clears throat> in the spaces here where the wall, the barrier will kind of dip in, some will say that's necessary because this area of, of Israel is an indefensible border. It's too narrow. It's like nine miles wide or something like that. So there's some arguments about where the, where the barrier has been drawn to say we have to do this in order to ensure the protection of Israel because these borders aren't defensible. I mean, but as Dad said, I think security would be the number one reason. If you really push someone hard enough, I suspect they would, they would acknowledge that a lot of it has to do with just reclaiming land. Reclaiming land. Um, but I remember when I spoke to uh, a former Israeli soldier um, it, it, we were in Tel Aviv, but I was talking to him about Hebron and about the stuff I'd written about in the book, and then I think we may do some stories about next week, I can't remember. Um, but I was describing everything that was happening, and he even acknowledged, yeah, I mean, I mean, his language was, that's apartheid, what's happening in Hebron. What we're doing to the Palestinians in Hebron is apartheid. But he said, but it's necessary, because if we don't do that, that's where they'll come from and bomb us. So he was even in this difficult place of saying, I am really uncomfortable with what's happening there, but I don't see any other way around it because if we don't do that, we're going to come under attack. Now, most of the people who attack, who, most of the suicide bombers have not been from Hebron. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't necessarily a, a factual argument. But it's to say that I think that is part of the mindset to say, we've got to do this because this is what's necessary to ensure the security of our country. Now, others would make an argument to say, what you're doing is in fact jeopardizing the security of your country. Because when you wall people off like that and take their land and segregate them, that's what makes people want to attack you. So it's having the opposite effect. Where do they set the bombs off? What's that? Where do they? What's their target area for suicide bombings? Well, it's been all. There have been suicide bombings in Tel Aviv. There have been some in Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem, I think, is probably where most of them have Jerusalem, happened. Jerusalem, a lot in Tel Aviv because Tel Aviv is the heart of the secular Israeli social life, and so in in bars and restaurants, some in Netanya along the coast. So no, no specific pattern or specific target, but anywhere that they can get the maximum terror result. 
I mean, most of the like bus bombings, I think, have been in Jerusalem. That's where the one was when my dad was there. Yeah. Yes. Are there any relevant political parties in uh, in Israel that are against this? Yeah. The relevance in yeah, yeah. There are. They are becoming a more marginal voice, but the historic left in Israel, um, uh, the, the, what was called the peace movement. Um, is its voice is weakening um, as as this conflict continues and as the society becomes more radical and moves more to the right. But yes, there are significant groups. One of the groups Michael was referencing, Breaking the Silence, is a group of former Israeli IDF soldiers who served in the West Bank who have decided to break the silence about what they're doing. And they lead tours into Hebron to show people this is what this is a reality. The government's telling you one thing, but this is in reality what we're doing. This is actually the way we're behaving toward Palestinians. But politically, there are some groups, they're just becoming more and more marginalized as the country as a whole moves further to the right. I mean, just like here, that the loudest voices on behalf of peace and justice are not political voices. And the, the, and the loudest voices in the country tend to be the ones that are perpetuating the hatred and the animosity, the same thing here. Um, but you have some really loud groups doing some really good work that we may mention later, but they don't have necessarily a voice in the, in the Knesset, in the parliament. Um, when the UN established uh, the state of Israel, was that border ever recognized by anyone in Palestine? You said Israel had never recognized a border. Did the other side recognize what the UN laid out in 48 or 49? The, the 1947 um, partition Part plan, yeah. the Palestinians rejected that plan. As did so the Arab world. rejected what the UN did in 47. No, the, the Zionists accepted it. They accepted they, it, but redrew it. But we, yes, yeah. so remember, I gave you a quote from David Ben-Gurion who said that in the wake of a partition, once we get this kind of land partition, in the wake of that, we'll abolish it and we'll take the rest of the land. And so what, what ended up happening was that when that partition happened, I don't have that map with us, it wasn't quite these borders. Uh, Israel had less land than they have now. The Zionist leadership said, we'll take it. And Palestinians said, we won't take it. And then what happened was there was a big war that happened. And Israel, at that time, was able to redraw, oh my goodness, redraw <laughs> its, um, its borders to what you see now, which is where they've kept them, but again, have never officially declared what they are. We're going to go here for a question next, but I just want to comment or, or say one more thing. that that The narrative that I grew up with, that most of us in the States grew up with, was the United Nations partitioned the land, Israel and the West accepted it, the Palestinians and the Arabs rejected it, and that's why there was war. And I hope what you've heard the last 10 weeks is enough to question that narrative. Yes, Israel accepted it, but they accepted it with the clear intention of a, using war as an opportunity to take more land. The Palestinians did not accept it because from their standpoint, they looked at this and said, why should we allow some foreign body in New York to divide up our land? This is all our land. We've lived here. We're the people who inhabit all of these villages. Why should we accept the right of some power over in the United States to partition our land? So they said, no, we reject it. They lost the war. And Israel used that war as a pretext to take more land. And I think that's the challenge of the narrative that many of us grew up with. Yes, sir. Um, a lot of this history, it seems, is coincident with the Cold War. And maybe Russia had something to do with it. And maybe Russia has something to do with what's going on over there right now. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I wish Rob was here. Rob, my, my uncle loves to talk about the Cold War in relation to this. So what I picked up from him was to say that, um, you know, and we did a little bit on this earlier on to say that the Cold War, one of the things that happened was the Cold War was cold between the U.S. and the USSR, but it was very hot between a whole bunch of other countries. 
where these two superpowers were playing out their war kind of microcosmically in other areas of the world, particularly in the global south. And one of those areas was Israel and, and, and Palestine. And so even to this day, you have Israel using US-made weapons and you have the Palestinian police force still having Soviet-made weapons. And so there's still some of that left. Uh, and there was, there was a lot of, um, I believe in the war, uh, maybe one of the wars in the 80s when Israel was invading Lebanon, uh, it was sort of playing out the, the kind of the Russian uh, anti-aircraft and the, and the US missiles and kind of all this kind of back and forth playing out of, of Cold War dynamics to see who would win this war. Uh, in terms of what Russia's doing now, I don't know that I have any kind of authoritative answer on that. Do you? I, I, yeah, I don't either. I think that would be beyond our expertise to say to say much, except that clearly uh, the Soviet, former Soviet Union and Russia have continued to maintain their alliances with the Arab world and to a certain extent with Palestine. Is that because philosophically they just agree with that position or is that because that puts them at odds with the United States because we are so blindly pro-Israel? I, I don't know. And I, I think there'd be a lot of different opinions about how that plays out. I wonder uh. if, if this would be a place to mention the, the large influx of Russians into Israel. Uh, yeah, well there were a, a, a million Russian immigrants that came into Israel in the 1980s, 90s, um, um, and some question about the, the Jewishness of all of those immigrants and whether they met all of the criteria for, for immigration. But again, it was an attempt to deal with the impinging demographic crisis that there were, Palestinians were reproducing so much faster. And so Israel had to, to open its gates and also, of course, in response to persecution in Russia and to bring in as many Russian Jews as possible. How that affects the, all the you know, geopolitical considerations, I'm not really sure. Yes, sir. Okay, so listening out through all the weeks and stuff like that, so I got, so if Israel moved back to the 47 line and they moved everybody back, that's no guarantee for peace because Palestine says, well, that's not far enough, you gotta go west of the Mediterranean to make us happy. No. Correct? No. Well, that's, you've said it, it's all theirs, Right. They claim right. all of it is. Right, but they've, the, as, a, as a group and politically, they've yielded that claim. The Palestinian Authority uh, and the PLO in 1988 accepted the partition of the land, and all they're asking for is the 1949 armistice border. Okay. Now, I'm not speaking to Hamas right. and what Hamas represents, but the legal representation of Palestine has accepted in the international community 22% of historic Palestine in acceptance for peace. And all of the Arab world has said the same thing. Almost all of the Arab world has spoken together and said, if you will return to the 1949 armistice line and allow the establishment of, a, of Palestine, we will be at peace with Israel. Which is also the U.S. position, right? The U.S. position holds right. a two-state position based on the 67 borders. But you'll remember that right after the 48 war, when Israel conquered more land and, and the borders became what they are now with Jordan controlling this land, um, no. <laughs> um, what you had this se series of wars that happened after that, and then also the rise of Palestinian terrorism in the in the '60s mm -hmm. after the conquering of the of the land in the Six Day War, and all of that was what the phrase Rob is often used is an un attempt to undo 1948. So all of that was still with this claim from the Palestinians of saying this land was all ours. This partition plan was completely illegal based on the principles of self-determination that Woodrow Wilson put forward. We did not agree to this. You had no right to partition our land. We do not accept it. And Palestine as a whole cannot be partitioned, cannot be accepted. 
They finally realized that wasn't going to work. And so in 1988, they announced when they said, well, we're going to establish our state in East Jerusalem. Um, we are going to recognize Israel's uh, existence. And then they also said they will, we, they will forswear their claim to 78% of Palestine. In other words, we no longer are calling for our state and all of the British mandate of Palestine. We now will just take a state in uh, the West Bank and in Gaza. So that's been the official Palestinian position since 1988. And I would add that to do what you suggested would leave not only the right-wing Palestinians as an object to peace, but much of Israel, because much of the Israeli population would not agree to that sort of return to those borders. They want all of the land. So it's equally true that there is a subset of Palestinians who want everything back and there is an equal or larger subset of the Israeli population that wants everything for theirs. Because maybe you've got five to 600,000 Israeli citizens living in the West Bank. Yeah. Um, and as of a survey in 2012 by Israel's largest uh, newspaper, Haaretz, they uh, estimated that, um, to kind of give a sense of some of the atmosphere within Israel, um, that over half of the surveyed Israeli population would support denying Palestinians the right to vote if the West Bank was annexed. And in other words, if all of the Palestinians and all the Israelis live in one state, then over half of the surveyed Israeli public said they would, they would agree and support denying Palestinians the right to vote within that state. <coughs> Yeah, there's huge, there's huge international outrage over it. Right, and that, well, that, that's the history, in my view, of the Jewish lobby and APAC and the control that they hold on the American Congress. Uh, there is a huge international outcry about the settlements. It's been pronounced on by the United Nations, by the World Court, by the European Union. Everyone, even the U.S. government, the official position of every single president has been the settlements are an obstacle to peace. Clinton said it, Bush said it, Senior Bush, Junior Bush, Obama, everyone says it, but no one does anything about it because it's quite simple. In the United States, you cannot get elected to national office without proclaiming your undenying support of the security of the state of Israel. And until that changes, nothing's going to change here. Until we vote differently and elect people who are willing to say, let's go back to the table and look at what brings about justice. But until then, nothing's going to change because you simply cannot reach national office in this country unless you go to Jerusalem and put your arm around the prime minister and say, I pledge my undying support to the security of the state of Israel. So a couple of things on that. Um, we'll go next. We, we have a slide and we can put up if y'all are interested about some of the reasons why the U.S. has been so supportive of Israel all these years. Um, but just kind of piggybacking off of something that you said there that I just want to clarify for us, that we would in no way say that to be... Um, uh, that to be pro-Jewish means that you support this. In fact, most Jews would not claim that. So we want to distinguish a little bit between being pro-Israel or even pro-Zionist and being pro-Jewish and pro-Palestinian, what all these things mean, because some of the most outspoken advocates for peace and for the end of the occupation are Jewish voices 
within Israel. So, I mean, one of the folks that I sat down with back in uh, August uh, when I was over there was a guy named Rami El-Hanan, who, um, whose grandfather survived Auschwitz, uh, whose father-in-law was a soldier in the 48 war, a commander in the 67 war, a member of the Israeli parliament, and a well-respected professor at the University of Haifa. Very, very famous family, very, very Jewish family. Again, Holocaust surviving kind of family. Uh, and in 1998, his daughter Smadar was 14, and she was blown up in Jerusalem by a Palestinian suicide bomber. Um, and he told me the story of what that was like, about trying to find, he heard there was an attack, he's trying to find out where his daughter is, can't find his daughter. Then they end up going to the morgue, and he talks about that moment where he's having to see her body for the first time, and that that's a moment that never leaves you. And so he said then, in the Jewish tradition, you have the tradition of Sheva, which is the seven days of mourning. And he said, but then the eighth day comes. <coughs> And you have to get up and decide what you're going to do about this. Are you going to pursue a path of revenge and retribution retaliation? Or are you going to do what he decided to do, which was say, uh, what can I do to make sure that nobody else has to deal with this same suffering and loss? And so at the age of about 45, he finally sat down in a room and had an actual conversation with the Palestinian for the first time in his life. Uh, and he joined a group uh, called the Parent Circle Families Forum, which are Israeli uh, parents, Jewish parents, and Palestinian uh, parents and family members, all who are working for reconciliation um, along the shared, uh, the common ground of the shared sense of loss, because they've all lost family members. And so they go, and they're in, they're in uh, universities and schools and offices, and they go all over the world and all over Israel and all over the West Bank, bringing Israelis and Palestinians together to have these conversations. And they do that, one, out of a sense of loss, and two, for Rami, says out of a strong sense of his Jewishness to say that Judaism has a, a deep respect for life. <laughs> and a care for the foreigner. And you read the Hebrew text that Rob's going, all this stuff that he says, this is what it means to be Jewish. This is not what it means to be Jewish, Rami would say. This is not Jewishness. Jewish people don't occupy and steal land from other people. That's not what we do. What we do is we respect each other as human beings and we look for common ground. So it's just to say that I would, I would kind of caution against in any way thinking that to be pro-Jewish and support Jewish people, I must support what the state of Israel is doing. Jewish people don't believe that. I mean, as a whole. Some would say that, and it's, I think it's a very unhelpful argument, because it, it kind of walls Israel off from any critique whatsoever. That if you critique Israel as a Jew, you're a self-hating Jew. If you critique Israel as a non-Jew, then you're anti-Semitic. It makes it so that nobody can say anything negative to the state of Israel, which is just, it, it's, it's not sustainable, and we don't hold that standard for any other country or entity in the world. So why, why would the state of Israel get that? So I, don't, I just wanted to offer that. You, you, you did it. I, I, I want to hear more on the people who are trying to unify this, this mm. whole mess, right? So I hope that's coming later. Um, but my question was, okay, so you quote Ben-Gurion saying, hey, we agree to this line because we have to, for expedience sake, we're going to take the rest. A cynic would say the same thing about the Palestinians yeah. 1988 forfeiture of the rest of Israel. Absolutely. So how does that play out? How, why would we believe them now? Yeah. Kind of kind of a kind of a question. It's a, right? it's a very good question. I think on some level we believe them because we have no other choice. The same reason that we believe our government we chose to believe our government when they promised certain things to the Native Americans and then reneged on every treaty that we signed. We believe our governments because we don't have any choice. I mean I, that's just the way democracies work. 
And so you have Palestinian representatives who have said, okay, we're ready to negotiate for peace, and this is what we're willing to give up. We're willing to give up 78% of historic Palestine. We're willing to give up our homes in Jaffa and all of the 531 villages that were destroyed. We're willing to give all that up for peace. We just want all these settlers out, or we want them to become citizens of Palestine. That's an option. This minority of Jews who live in the West Bank could become citizens of a Palestinian state in the same way that 20% of Israelis are Palestinians. So, yes, could they be duplicitous? Could they go back on that? Could that be what it was for Ben-Gurion, a pretext for war? Yes, all that's possible. But I think that's where the international community has to step in and say, we've negotiated a peace, now we're going to hold you to it. The reality has been that the United States has never been willing to hold Israel to any of the United Nations resolutions. We vetoed as many as we could in the Security Council, and we've never told Israel, you must abide by international law whether it was the International Court or the United Nations. So, I, yeah, I think it's absolutely, we would have reason to be sus suspicious. And also just to say that there are slightly different contexts for the claims and, and kind of look at the, the apparatus that each group has for enforcing that position. In other words, when Ben-Gurion says, sure, we'll take partition, we'll abolish it, and we'll expand, he had the military apparatus to make that happen. Right. Palestinians don't have the military, they have no military, first of all, and they don't have any kind of uh, um, militarized or violent force in order to actually uh, expand to the whole of Palestine, which is why I think that they, after 40 years of trying, they said, never mind, this isn't going to work. Yeah. Um, right, but, but, it, but it, they would quickly align with Jordan and Syria, and they would have Right, well, Jordan and Egypt have peace treaties with Israel, okay. long-recognized peace treaties, and the rest of the Arab world has said at the Arab Council, if you will solve this problem, and return to these borders, we will all make peace with Israel. Now, they may all be lying, but you know that's just where we are in international that's politics, that's right? That's <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. So uh, you mentioned that in order to become elected in U.S. politics, you have to support Israel. What are the power um, entities and the economic entities that make that true? The largest is APAC, the American Institute for American Israel. Israel. Yeah, American political Israel action committee, political American Israel political, political action. It's it's the one of the most powerful lobbies in uh, in Washington D.C. Um, they donate tremendous amounts of money to candidates across the spectrum, um, and they control the narrative by perpetuating this belief that we have in the United States that to be pro-Jewish means to be pro-Israeli, that to be sympathetic with the Jews over the Holocaust, over the pogroms, over their diaspora, to be sympathetic to Judaism means that we must be completely pro-Israel. And that security is best achieved by the military suppression of a rebellious people. That's the narrative. The way Israel becomes secure is to wall off the Palestinians and to rule them with an iron fist. And that is not going to lead to security. There was a quote yesterday just with respect to the Olympics where a Palestinian said, the Palestinians have sent two swimmers to the Olympics. And this young Palestinian man said, I hope the world recognizes how significant this is because we don't have a single Olympic-sized swimming pool in all of Palestine. So these two Palestinian swimmers have had to train in unofficial pools. And his response was, and the Israelis think that we're going to give up. No, we're, we're going to resist occupation in every way possible, even to the point of going to the Olympics to swim without a chance in the world to win because we have to train in smaller pools. But Israel's foreign policy with Palestine is based on the assumption that the Palestinians will eventually give up 
under this oppression and will leave, or that the world will just give up and turn a blind eye to apartheid. And a lot of that comes from this lobby. We know many of you need to go. Time is up. I'll just feel free to, to, to leave as you need to, and I'll just make a quick response, and maybe we can pick up there later. Uh, absolutely understand that sentiment. Um, the counter to that, the reality for the Palestinians, many of whom acknowledge the suffering of the Jewish people, but the response is, why are we paying the price? We weren't the ones responsible for the pogroms or for the diaspora or for the Holocaust. Why are our homes being taken? Why are we the ones being punished? as a result of that. And I think that just has to be answered. It has to be dealt with while we have a sympathy for the, for the Jewish people. And another way maybe to bring it back close to home is to say, what if someone decided that the, the, the way to right the wrongs that we have done to the Native American peoples is to take the state of Tennessee and to say, let's bring the Cherokee home. Let's bring as many tribes back home as possible. I want your house. I want my house. I want your house. We're going to take it all because that's the only way they need some land. We need to give something back to them, not a reservation. Let's make an Indian state. Let's make a state that is largely Indian. We have to do that by taking all of your homes. So you've got 30 days to pack up and move out because your land is going to be titled over to somebody else. That's the way we're going to solve the persecution of the Indian people. I think most of us would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I'm very sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic to what happened to Native Americans. Give them Montana. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Give them Montana. Don't give them Tennessee, not my home. I think that's part of what we're dealing with. And I don't mean that facetiously. I just mean it's that felt that dip deeply for people. Thank you so much for letting us go over. Appreciate it. I'm Larry. We were just visiting. I wish I'd been on all of these because it's really interesting. But so like the white area, that's the West Bank? Yes, all of that was the, the West Bank. And, but all of that used to be Palestine, right? All of it used to be historic Palestine, not a nation state. But the Jews just started moving in. The Jews started moving. Well, there were Jews that lived there all along, even after 70 AD when the Romans drove them out. There was a remnant that stayed. And then they started moving back over the centuries. But there were several major waves of immigration in the late 1800s and early 1900s when Jews to begin, began to move back with a goal toward a national identity. So, why did the Palestinians let them move in? Or did they not have any control? Any? Well, they, they didn't control it. They were, they've always been under occupation. For 400 years they were under occupation of the Ottoman Turks. And then when World War I 
ended and the uh, Ottomans lost control, then the British controlled Palestine, the British mandate of Palestine from 1917 till 1946. former Palestine is that whole area including the West Bank and yeah. what, Tel Aviv? And what we know today is Israel was mandatory Palestine along with some area on the east side of the Jordan the East Bank of the Jordan, which was eventually broken off and given to the Hashemites to become the Hashemite Kingdom so of Jordan. What, what, how does the population split Palestinians versus Jews? If you look at all of historic Palestine, everything, Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, it's about 50-50 with, oh. with a tip toward Palestinians now. They've outnumbered Jewish Israelis. If you take out the West Bank and Gaza and just leave the state of Israel, then it's about 75% Jewish and 25% Palestinian. So you said some people in favor of peace. Does peace mean all of the Palestinians moving out? What does that mean? That's one, that's one solution on the table in, with the Israeli government is, is uh, mass deportation. Yeah. This is great. I wish I could. Where can you read more about this? I would I would start here if you want something that's manageable. These two are very balanced books written by international authors that try to lay the narratives out side by side. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for coming. Mass yes, deportation worked pretty good for us. Yeah, it did. Didn't it? I'm glad you finally came and ended your speech with that because that's. Yeah, it's just that, it's beyond comprehension. How can how can we how, how can we do what we're doing? I mean, even to, even in, right here in this room, right, right, how yeah. can we do it? Yeah. How can we even concede that that could be a possibility? I mean, well, how long has it been? Three hundred years? Since yeah. well, maybe yeah, yeah. four hundred, yeah. well, five hundred to yeah. to Columbus, and he started it. Yeah. Well, he, he had a better idea. He just killed him. Just killed him, right, exactly. Then you don't have yeah. to deal with it. Right? Yeah. 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 But it's, and, and nobody, nobody even hears it, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, that, that's just, yeah. it's always been a very difficult thing for it's me. It's extremely difficult, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thanks so much. I wish we'd talk about that a little bit. Uh, maybe we will next time. <laughs> and, and about your election thing, until we can elect, until back in, in the mid until we elected Abraham Lincoln, we didn't have a chance of solving that problem. Right, right. Right. So, and many of us thought that, so that President Obama was going to be the, the so one to change that because he was very clearly sympathetic to the Palestinians before the election. But he quickly realized he couldn't get elected unless he... Yeah. That because of the, how long this has been going on, as you mentioned here, the Israeli public, for instance, wow. has become more and more right. Is it, is it okay? Sound okay? Not too combative? Uh, Thank you so much for your question. I hope that the response didn't seem flippant or too casual or no, too... No, I, no, and I knew, I, I, 
there was such a short period of yeah. time remaining yeah. for you to even yeah. be able to tackle it. I'm sorry about yeah. that. Well, <coughs> it's, it is, I think, one of the deep questions for, for everyone who cares deeply about this issue. That, there's no way to go back now and right the wrongs. Just like here in this country, there's no way for us to do justice to the Native American peoples. Something more could be done for us as a country to acknowledge the wrong of what we did and to make reparations besides just try to improve health care on the Indian reservations. We could do something more. But there's no way to right this wrong. I think what people want is to say, let's see where we are now and figure out how to move forward to minimize the ongoing wrongs. And the problem, I believe, is that it, by delaying for 60 years dealing with this problem, Israel has in a way sealed their own defeat. And I think that's what many people now are seeing, is that by allowing the settlements to happen, they've ended the two-state solution, which was the just solution. And the only other just solution under international law and international norms is to grant human rights to everyone who lives in a country. And that means the end of the Jewish state. Yeah. And that, that's where my question was really right. going, because when you describe the, the two non-negotiables on either side, right. Right. Um, the, never the twain shall meet, right. what happens then to the Jewish state? And do we believe, first of all, as people who believe in human rights, and then even before that, as Christians, do we believe that Jews, that, that if this is what it takes for Israel to exist, that Israel should not exist? Yeah. And then and that leads me to another question, sure. which was a little more complex to present. Right? And that is that um, we, we, I, I, see ten, I see a tension between what we see of God and his, um, his justice. And he loves every person in the world, loves every human being. And on the other hand, we see his sovereignty and his plan for his, his history for the earth. And I am a believer that there that Israel's existence is ultimate Yeah, I understand. I guess you know, that, that's a long, long, difficult conversation. I think there are those who hold deeply to that tradition and that way of looking at Scripture who are actively seeking other ways to interpret those texts and those prophecies like my brother did, who would simply say, this is not a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. That's not what the prophecies were about. And Israel gave up its right to the land by failing to abide by the conditions of a conditional prophecy. Um, that's not, well, that's not my chance. I'm, I'm still recording. <laughs> uh, my, my position is 
one that I don't. I, I gave up on 